Medicine is more than just pills and chemicals and medicine. We are the medicine. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Dr. Emily Silverman. She's here at Esalen to help facilitate Through Our Own Eyes, a retreat for and by women physicians. She's also the host and creator of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast whose aim is to demystify doctorhood and bring to light the real people who toil behind the mask as our modern day healers. We discussed what it means to be a woman and a physician in our contemporary healthcare system, how the inner world of a doctor continues to change in an increasingly capitalistic society, how healthcare and human connection may interact in the near future, and much more. Here's my conversation with Dr. Emily Silverman. So the retreat is called Through Our Own Eyes, T-O-O-E-R, and I noticed people have been pronouncing it tour, so I'll pronounce it that way. And I learned of this retreat a couple of years ago when the organizers reached out to me and they had learned about my work with storytelling and medicine, and they wanted to make the theme for this year's retreat around storytelling and medicine. And at the time, I didn't know about the retreat at all. And I actually didn't know about Esalen um, because I was pretty new to the West Coast. And uh, when I started telling my friends, like, I think I might do this workshop with storytelling at the Esalen Institute, all their jaws dropped and they were like, the Esalen Institute. Oh my God, you have to do, you have to do it. You have to go. And now that I'm here, I completely understand why, but back to your question, it's a gathering of around 60 to 80, uh, women physicians who come here every two years. And I believe it was founded a couple decades ago, back in the nineties, I want to say maybe even the eighties. And the purpose of the retreat is to come together as women physicians and talk about our lives as, as doctors and, you know, kind of figuring out how to navigate medicine as people, but also as women juggling all of the different responsibilities, expectations, stereotypes, um, and also just a place where we can unwind and, and unpack and, uh, unpack our minds and take in the beauty of this place and just really take care of ourselves for once, um, instead of focusing on taking care of other people. So I wanted to dive deep into why you're the perfect facilitator for this group with the, the narrative element um, in medicine. But first, I just wanted to ask, so why is it important for doctors to engage in this sort of like retreat and taking time out? What is it about characterologically about doctors that necessitates this? A lot of people compare medicine to war. You know, I don't want to get too melodramatic, but when you're dealing with blood and guts and life and death and really the sort of ugly side and the beautiful side of humanity, people, personalities, their bodies, their bodily functions, their families, their family dynamics, it's just very complicated. It's very complex. Um, depending on where you work, there may be different degrees of trauma that you're absorbing from your patients. I, th I think no matter what population you work with, there is a trauma, you know, because you're dealing with people who are sick. But uh, I work at San Francisco General Hospital with a patient population that struggles with homelessness, mental illness, substance use disorders, and they have really hard stories and hard lives. And so on the one hand, you're dealing with the medicine and the sickness, but on the other hand, you're also taking in all of these really um, heavy uh, and 
difficult narratives and there is a kind of secondary trauma that comes out of it that I think sometimes people will compare to like people coming back from war, coming back from the battlefield, like sort of that shell-shocked like PTSD sort of syndrome. So I think that's why it's especially important that we take care of our doctors. And then shifting over to the culture of medicine, the truth is especially as medicine becomes more fragmented and automated and faceless, there's a loss happening, I believe, in the human connection in medicine. And there's also um, hazing and abuse that happens with students and residents sometimes. I mean, those are strong words, but I, I really do feel that when you're making someone work for 28 hours in a row, that that's not right. And that, that really precludes the person from being able to take care of their own body. I don't think it's necessary um, that we be doing this to our trainees, but we do. And we do it because there's a history and there's a culture and there's also an attitude of, you know, you need this because it'll make you better and you need to suffer because it'll make you a better doctor and you have to be there at hour 24 when the patient takes a turn and that's going to help your education and things like that. Um, but I, I really think that there are other ways to educate doctors that is more humane. And so for those two reasons, I think Doctors are very vulnerable to things like burnout, depression, suicide, and it's critical that they have time and space to step away, process their experiences, and take care of themselves. Hence a wellness retreat like this. Do you find that the doctors have willingly gone into this, or there's some element of the type A personality that resists taking time out? I think it's both, and I think most people are here knowing that they need it, um, but there's definitely an undercurrent of type A personalities, overachievers, this concept of like self-sacrifice and I sacrifice myself for others, but what does that mean about me and myself and my wellness? Especially when you're getting into kind of the, I don't want to disparagingly say like woo-woo or anything, but it's just a different model of thinking. It's not cognitive, it's not intellectual, it's not theoretical. It's like dropping into the body, paying attention to things like movement, uh, vocalizations, sound, smells, you know, there's all these lotions and all these creams and there's this beautiful environment. And I think sometimes physicians get really uncomfortable when they're asked to kind of drop out of the cognitive and down into the body, which is also ironic because the body is our object of study. And I, th I think it does make some people uncomfortable, but I also think it's really important that we exercise that side of the brain as well. So I'm curious, I mean, it seems like a lot of the work that you've been doing is sort of like excavating the soul of the, the modern physician. In your opinion, is there a type of person who's drawn to medicine? Is there a type of person who becomes a, a doctor? Great question. And believe it or not, that hasn't been framed to me like that in a while. And I have to think about it a bit. I think definitely medicine tends to recruit people who are achievers. Mm -hmm. There is some ego wrapped up in the pursuit of medicine. You know, it's viewed in some sense as this holy grail profession where you have the white coat and there's almost like a priestly quality. There's an automatic respect that you get from society. There's an automatic credibility that you get. And I think that's very attractive um, for people. Does that come from a, a lack in, in early childhood of, of not getting that? Or is it more sort of expectations that were dropped upon them by parents? I think it can come from either one. And I think especially when you're dealing with people who attach their worth and their value to external validation, which I see as a common theme among medical professionals is we love like the awards and the acknowledgements and we like to um, 
be reminded over and over again of our value of our worth and being a doctor becomes a deep part of our identity. Um, I think that's definitely a part of it, but also I don't think that's why, um, many people come to medicine and even for those who do come to medicine in part for that reason, there's also all of the other beautiful, wonderful reasons, you know, like wanting to help others and, um, being driven by a deep curiosity about science, you know, especially biomedical science, especially the human body and how it works and, and disease and, and recovery and, and cure and management and maintenance, all of those things, um, I think pull, compassionate people to medicine. But I also think what we talked about earlier, this like status thing definitely plays into it. And I think it used to be money too, but now people are realizing that there's actually not very much money in medicine at all. Really? (laughs) Well, I guess it depends who you are. You know, I don't want to downplay it, but when people think about doctors, I think they still have this model in their mind of the middle-aged white man, affluent, living in a McMansion and like spending the weekend golfing on the golf course with their beautiful family. And that's kind of the model of the doctor. And the reality is that's not what it's like anymore. Medical school costs a quarter of a million dollars to attend. Um, Some people are lucky and they get financial aid. Other people have to take out loans. And by the time people graduate from medical school, they have tremendous debt, tremendous. And sometimes it actually impacts what field they choose to go to. You know, some people come into medical school wanting to be a primary care doctor or a psychiatrist, and then they come out instead wanting to be a dermatologist and they just, you know, want to, they realize, I think during medical school, how stressful the job is and they kind of, they want a path to their own self happiness, which, you know, on some level you can't really blame them for. And so the, the way medicine is reimbursed is shifting the way medical students, um, do their career. And then, yeah, a lot of my colleagues, um, are in debt, can't afford to buy homes. Um, and, there is, and the training is long, you know, I did internal medicine, that's three years, but I have a friend who did ENT, ear, nose, and throat surgery. That's five years. There are people who do neurosurgery, that's seven years. And so by the time you're done with your training, sometimes you're in your like mid to late thirties, or if you came to medicine a little later, it could even be in your forties. And then you get the big fat six figure salary, but then you have all this debt to pay back. And so it's not, if you, for anyone listening, if you want to make money, medicine is not the way to do it. Um, but it is a really personally gratifying field, but not without its dysfunctions and its challenges. So let's talk about some of those dysfunctions and the neurotic soul of, um, the modern physician. I want, I want you to talk about, uh, the, the nocturnist, your podcast and, uh, an event, would you call it an event? Yeah, I would call it um, a medical story, t- a medical storytelling live show and podcast. I grew up feeling pretty strongly that I wanted to go after medicine, and I think that was a combination of, as I mentioned, this deep, irrepressible curiosity about my physical being. Like, what am I? What is the machine of my body? Just wanting to understand how it worked. And I had all those children's books where um, you would like pull open the image and you could see the intestines. Then you pulled open another image and you could see inside the, you know, like all the different layers. Like I just wanted to peel it all back and learn and figure out like, what was that? I was also a really um, neurotic uh, type A, like striving student. And so there was that element of it that was appealing 
feeling is like, oh, jumping through the hoops and wanting to go to medical school and kind of get to that academic holy grail. But anyway, um, I knew I wanted to go into medicine for all those reasons, um, but had always been very artistic and creative and effectively found myself in the middle of my intern year at UCSF, learning a ton, great colleagues, but very depressed um, because I wasn't able to take care of myself and I wasn't able to nurture that creative and artistic and spiritual soul part of myself. And I was seeing a lot of really messed up stuff in the hospital and I had no way to move that experience through me and out of me. And it was just accumulating and accumulating and causing a lot of moral distress. And I decided that I wanted to create a platform where doctors everything from med students to residents to even faculty could come together and just talk about what it is to be a doctor in 2019. What is it? Who is it? What are the challenges? How does it impact us personally, emotionally, spiritually? And I was inspired by The Moth um, because I had been to a live taping of The Moth and I thought it was a really beautiful community building exercise and a really unique medium, different from writing. For people Um, who who are not familiar with The Moth, what, what goes on at those events? The Moth is a live storytelling show where um, people come together and they have some that are open mic format where you pick a name out of a hat. Um, and then that person goes up on stage and tells a story and there's no coaching there. You know, there is a theme you have to tie your story to the theme. And then from those open mic shows, they'll, they'll take the stories that they find most promising or compelling and then they'll coach them up and then they do these moth grand slam events, sort of like a greatest hits. And then they record it, um, and release it as a podcast. So you can listen on your phone and it's just the traditional art of oral storytelling. It almost has like a folkloric feel to it, which is really nice. And so I decided I wanted to try that because there was a lot of work out there in physician literature and physician writing and, you know, podcasting was coming on the scene as this new medium. And I also just liked the idea of all of us coming together under one roof to share an experience um, instead of like interacting with each other, like digitally through our phones, like having that warm body next to you, I think makes a really big difference. I mean, you never think about doctors in community at all. You you pretty much experience them as a lay person when they enter into your um, small community to deliver news. Exactly. Yeah. I had a friend who said to me, you know, I never realized my doctor was human until one day she was pregnant. And then I remembered like, oh, wow, she has a life outside of this room. And it reminded me of being a kid, like in the second grade. And you think your teachers just like live in the classroom and you don't even think about the fact that they like have lives. (laughs) The mask for a doctor is very thick. And our society really um, supports that notion, I think. Agreed. I 100% agree. And so I wanted basically to create the moth for healthcare in, in a sense. I wanted to have doctors and also nurses and other healthcare professionals, but really right now our brand is mostly doctors, um, a community for them to stand up on stage and tell their stories, come together physically under one roof to share in this experience. And then we do audio record all of the shows and then we pick stories to, to bring onto the podcast. And the way the podcast is set up is the first half of the episode is the live story clip, kind of like the moth. And then the second half is an interview with me or a conversation with me. And that's fun because we can go in and tease a part elements of the story and get some backstory. And that's, that's really nice. And each episode's about half an hour long. And the project is called the Nocturnist. And for any listeners who don't know, a Nocturnist is a doctor who works at night. Um, and sometimes people ask, Oh, is your show only for doctors who work at night? And I always say, no, it's actually just a metaphor. Um, I like the name, the Nocturnist, because it evokes feelings of like mystery and nighttime and 
coming together to kind of take off the mask, as you said, or peel back the curtain and, and talk about things that, that people don't normally talk about. Um, we're very, um, particular about our branding. The colors are these warm, inviting, like purples and sort of nighttime hues. I really wanted to steer away from the sterile, like white and blue of, and the stethoscope and the white coat, um, imagery that is often associated with medicine. I wanted to create a brand, uh, and a, and a product, um, and a community where it was okay to be medical, but also to be beautiful and to be warm and to be human. And so that's what we're going after. And we've done over a dozen live shows, most in the Bay Area, but also occasionally we'll do elsewhere. Like we just had a show um, in New York a couple of years ago. We're having another show in New York this December. We had a show in Boston once and we're thinking about branching out even further. The podcast, we've had two seasons. Um, each season has about 10 episodes and we're about to launch season three, hopefully in 2020. How do you find the performers for your live events? So initially it was really hard because, uh, physicians don't like to make themselves vulnerable. And when they tell stories, um, they don't like to put themselves in the stories. And I have to remind them, actually, this is not a story about your patient. This is a story about you. If you think about like the hero's journey and the hero going through all the obstacles and all of that, that hero is not your patient. That hero is you and the spotlight is on you. And we really want to be talking about ourselves and our own transformations. And if a patient happens happens to be a character in the story, so be it. And we have strategies for how we deal with confidentiality around that. But I think reframing it so that you, the physician, are the person who is sharing is really scary for people because as physicians, we're trained to be neutral. We're trained that, you know, this is not about us with the self-sacrifice, the martyrdom is really embedded in our culture. So initially it was hard to get people to perform. And I did a lot of reaching out to individuals and inviting them personally and thinking, you know, you're so funny or you're so smart or you're such a great storyteller. Like, would you come on? And they said, yes. Um, I think partially because they trusted me and also because I think there's a hunger to express uh, through our art, through storytelling. Um, but now that we have a name for ourselves and we've been written up in the Chronicle and San Francisco magazine and now have a national reputation and there's a lot going on on Twitter about us, people know us. I think there's, and also just me being a doctor myself, I think there's a credibility there that's really important. Um, now when we put out a call for submissions, we get a ton of submissions. Oh, really? And so I like to say, you know, I hope that the nocturnal is shifting the culture and, and helping people feel a little bit more open and um, willing to share. And so, yeah, it's almost disquieting to listen to some of your episodes like this. I'm just not used to thinking about doctors in that way. There's an episode, I forget the name of the gentleman, but he experienced uh, what he described as the Lazarus effect. Why don't you uh, speak about that one? That's a great episode. So that was a story told by an emergency medicine physician, uh, Joe Sills. And Joe is a, you could probably tell from the tone of his voice, he's like a pretty like straight laced guy, like sort of deadpan and really nice guy, really compassionate doctor, but definitely, um, doesn't come off immediately as like the most open and like kind of spilling his blood all over the page kind of a guy. Um, but he tells this really amazing story about, um, learning how to pronounce patients dead and the ritual of that. And that, you know, there's rules legally for how to pronounce someone dead. You have to listen to the heart for a certain number of seconds and you have to look for chest rise and make sure that they're not breathing. And so he's starting this process of 
pronouncing people dead. And he jokes that there's always this fear that he'll pronounce someone dead, but then they'll like sit up (laughs) and then he'll be in the newspaper the next day for his mistake. And he's joking about that. But then he goes on to tell a story of a time where that kind of happened, where he's working in the emergency room and this patient comes in and unfortunately he's very sick and he he has a cardiac arrest and they lose a pulse many times and they get it back many times before they then lose the pulse again. And he tells the wife, I'm so sorry, your husband has died. And a couple minutes after those words come out of his mouth, he's like touching the patient's wrists where the pulse is, and then the pulse comes back. And this is something that is known in medicine. It's called the Lazarus effect. And there's a variety of explanations um, for why this happens. But the idea is that after death, the pulse comes back just very briefly, um, and then the person dies again. And um, this is not something that's like survived. It's just sort of a weird thing that happens. Um, but he really dives deep into like the sense of embarrassment and shame that he feels over having said to this wife, you know, your husband is dead and then the pulse comes back and just really exploring that. And um, I thought did a really beautiful job uh kind of diving into his own insecurities and talking about, he, he brings the listener back to like the second grade where he messed up the school ant farm and the shame that he felt, um, during that. And so I thought it was a really nice window into like the physician psyche. I thought so too. I mean, he, he describes how some of his motivation to become a doctor came from this deeply rooted sense of not wanting to be embarrassed mm-hmm. in, in front of others. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I would think of consciously when interacting with a doctor. I'm very impressed by the the premise of the show to shed light upon these regular working people. And usually there are artists and journalists who are interested in showcasing regular people, such as Studs Terkel, who made a career out of interviewing the, the common man, so to speak, or Humans of New York, which takes on the street photographs. But doctors in our society live in this kind of exalted position. So we don't often have the desire to humanize them. That's right. I think that's right. And as I'm listening to you say that, I think to myself like, oh, that makes sense. Like if I am entrusting my body to another human, I want to think that that human is God, that that human is perfect. And, you know, sometimes I wonder for people who listen to our show who aren't doctors, like how does it make them feel to know that doctors have doubts and vulnerabilities and fears and their own baggage? And does that reinforce the connection that, oh, actually this is just another human being. And actually this feels like a lot less intimidating or on some other level, is that like disquieting? Like, oh, actually I kind of viewed my doctor as this like robot. And now that I know that they're not, that's actually like really uncomfortable. (laughs) And I, I, I expect maybe there's some of both, but I think it's also the truth. So we should celebrate it and, and talk about it. Yes, absolutely. Um, what other episodes of your show or what stories contained in, in those episodes did you find most moving? Or I was wondering if you could share maybe another one. For some reason, the one that's coming to mind is a story that was told by a woman named Milana Pebanito, uh, who's a family medicine resident. She tells a story about taking care of a woman who came in through the emergency room, was already very sick and basically was getting sicker in the emergency room, but they had had a discussion with the family that the patient didn't want to go to the ICU and have the, you know, heroic measures that they just really wanted the patient to come in and be made comfortable so that they could die comfortably. And so she gets this admission and she hears this news and she's in some ways like relieved 
that she doesn't have to stop this train that's already coming. So that part of it I thought was really interesting and really important, just shining a light on how we medicalize death. You know, we've kind of ignored the fact that like death is in, death is inevitable. And in medical school, like we don't actually talk about that as much, I think, as we should. And how do we think about that just like on a spiritual level? But the other thing I love about Milana's story is the patient then comes up to the ICU. She's starting this process, the dying process, the process of transitioning. Um, but Milana is not in the room um, holding the patient's hand or talking her through it or making sure that the patient is comfortable. Rather, she is um, at a computer struggling to find the correct order set and to put the correct check marks. And she's on the phone with pharmacy and there's all of these like electronic barriers between her literal, like physical barriers between her and the patient. She sees the nurses go into the room and gather around the patient and the patient dies. And she realizes in retrospect that she missed it. Like this was a moment that could have been really powerful and she was not in the room like the nurses were. She was with the computer. And so I think what I, what I love about that story is, number one, it talks a lot about kind of how our society thinks about death and how our medical culture thinks about death. Death as failure, like is that, is that something that we need to talk about and fix? But, but then also um, the way that the presence of the computer and the electronic medical record has really contaminated the hospital environment, the clinical environment, the doctor patient human connection environment. And we were talking about the differences between like the 50 year old, like white golfing rich doctor and like today's medicine. This is a challenge of today that those docs, they didn't have to deal with that. It's a brand new like ecosystem now in the hospital with how to juggle all the tasks, both human and electronic. And so I liked that too, because it had this like modern twist that really spoke to um, what it means to be like a millennial, um, um, in training. Yeah. One thing that struck me from listening to these podcasts is that these are ethical people who are struggling with kind of important issues. And it hit me that ethics is somewhat baked into the profession of medicine. And I, I can't think of any other um, professions where ethics is, is so central. So would you agree with that? I mean, what's it like to have a friend pool made up of doctors who are who, I mean, if I'm right, they're, they're ethical people. I think ethics is very much baked into medicine. I really agree with that. And I think it's because you are dealing with other people's bodies and other people's lives and the lives of their families. And it's also more of an ethical challenge today, I think, than it was 50 years ago. And that's because we have all of these technologies and all of these resources that we didn't before. So if you think about like, what was the treatment for a heart attack 50 years ago? It was like aspirin and bed rest and fingers crossed, you know, and now we have all of these different options and we have even for cancer, there's like, it's exploding and don't get me wrong. Like this is wonderful. This is, you know, prolonging people's life expectancies and hopefully prolonging quality of life, not just quantity. But what do you do in a situation where you have an artificial kidney like dialysis, you have an artificial lung like a ventilator, you have, um, you know, sometimes even machines that'll pump your blood for you. There's, there's all of this technology that's available 
And just because it exists doesn't mean that you're obligated to use it or that you should use it or that it's ethical to use it. And I think that brings up a lot of issues um, in medicine. And there's also just a lot of issues that come up around balancing autonomy, patient autonomy with, um, you know, what the medical team thinks is right for the patient. Um, For example, there's a lot of conversations around vaccines and, you know, whether, um, if a, if a parent decides that they don't want to vaccinate their kid, is that legal? And I personally am a strong proponent of vaccines. I I believe that the science shows that vaccines are safe. Um, and most of the medical community, um, would agree with me, but that's an extreme example. But what if it's something less like, um, not the vaccination of a child, but, you know, somebody who's a little bit confused and they can't quite make the decision for themselves. And how do you think about like, well, who do we get as a different decision maker? Who's the right person to make the decision? Like it just is endless. Like there's so many different, um, ways you can go with it. And so it's a lot, it's a lot to handle. And, um, the palliative care specialists are especially good at handling these situations. They are the traditionally used to be thought of as like end of life, doctors who treat and manage suffering, but now increasingly are, are being viewed more as, um, a, a service and a specialty that can swoop in and assist at any point in life. And they're very helpful. And then also often hospitals will have like an ethics consult or an ethics team who you can call in when you're not sure what to do and they can help support you. I also though think that ethics, um, is coming up in a lot of different fields outside of medicine and, the one I think about just living in San Francisco is in tech and in like social media and companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, um, or I guess Facebook and Instagram are now one company, but you know, what do you do with a society that gets like a dopamine rush when they click on a thing that really like triggers your emotions? Like, yes, that drives profit, but what does that do to society as a whole? And how do we balance those ethical issues I think are vital to the future of our country and, you know, potentially of our species. So I don't think it's just medicine, but I do think in medicine, it feels much more immediate because you're actually working with the person in front of you face to face. Whereas if you're working at Facebook, you're kind of like, on this campus and this bubble and like, do you ever really tangibly see the outcome of your decisions? Like maybe, maybe it's more diffuse and more distant. So, I mean, just speaking about tech, I'm kind of interested in the future of, of, of medicine. I don't know where I read this, maybe from Yuval Noah Harari, who, who's um, a sociologist and kind of a futurist, but maybe he, he spoke about the possibility that in the future, 90% of um, diagnostics will be done by machine rather than humans. I don't know if that's something of interest to you. Yes. And this is a conversation that's happening on many different levels. And this is something that Andrew Yang has talked a lot about the political candidate about, you know, this risk and this fear that um, technology is going to come in and displace people's jobs. Like it's already happening with manufacturing and retail and food service and like how far will it go? And, you know, are doctors soon going to be displaced from their jobs because it's going to be robots and artificial intelligence that are doing our diagnostic reasoning? My take on this is that there is no substitute for doctoring 
by a human. Um, there was recently a study published where uh, the researchers, um, I think, put histamine under the skin of patients, and then they split them into two groups. And in one group, they gave an antihistamine medication. And in the other group, they gave an antihistamine medication. But there also was an interaction with the doctor where they said, you know, I think this medicine will make you better. And there may have even been some touch involved. And when you compare the two groups, the group that interacts with the doctor, the welt under the skin, it gets better faster. And I think what this shows is that medicine is more than just pills and chemicals and medicine. We are the medicine, the people, the humans who are doing the caretaking and the doctoring and the interacting and the sort of soul supporting of the other person. Like that is such a integral part of healing and and medicine. And that's something by definition that a robot will never be able to take over for. So yes, I think physicians will start having these decision support tools and algorithms that they can tap into for help. But at the end of the day, I don't think there will ever be a substitute for the healing that happens just with the laying of hands or the holding space or the listening or the making the patient seeing, making the patient feel seen. Um, I think that's something that's uniquely human. Let's talk about the fact that it's a women's physician retreat. I was wondering if you could kind of shed light upon what is it like to be um, a woman and a physician in contemporary American society? As we talked about with the trends happening with tech and automation, the trend of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement is spilling into medicine as well, because like everything else, medicine is just a piece of of everything. Um, and so a lot of these forces that are changing in the world are also um, changing in medicine. Um, there is a very robust a Me Too or Time's Up movement within medicine itself. Um, there's a lot of stories that are coming to light these days about um, harassment and abuse happening in the workplace in medicine, unfortunately. Um, not just you know from doctor to patient, but from doctor to doctor, between colleagues. Um, and I think that's really important to recognize and to repair and to fix. Um, and there's also just frank disparities between men and women in the field of medicine in terms of pay, but also in terms of leadership. If you look at the composition of medical schools, it's about 50-50 men and women. But then if you look at leadership positions in medicine, um, whether it's, you know, being the head of a lab or a dean or a department chair or division chief, it's almost all men. And so they talk about this like leaky pipeline. It's like, where do all the women go between medical school all the way, you know, up to the top? And I think it's a lot of the same forces that are affecting women in other industries. It's, you know, ex an expectation that it be the woman who takes care of the family and of the kids and kind of burying a lot, um, a lot of the emotional labor of that. Um, a lot of just lack of mentorship and sponsorship, a lot of conscious bias and unconscious bias. When you think of like, oh, who would be a great fit for that position? Like if you're a man, what's the likelihood that you're going to think of your buddy who's also a man and not think of the woman across the hall. And so there's a lot of things to talk about. And, um, you know, in, in our groups here at Esalen this week, we've been talking a lot about balancing responsibilities of being a doctor and being a parent. And both of those roles do have an element of sacrifice built into them. And then I think, you know, there is a bit of a dissolving of the self that can happen when you're making sacrifices in both of those ways. And what do we do with that? A lot to talk about. And, you know, um, it's complicated. Yeah. In, in that case, the work that you do with the nocturnist is, 
is that much more important. It's like you are putting emphasis on the display of the self and, and saying, no, we can't just be roles. We're people with foibles, with interests. There's just something really, I mean, it's, it's beyond humanizing. It's almost, it's uh, therapy for the, I mean, what, what percentage of your audience is in the medical profession, do you think? I would say a majority, but it's definitely not exclusively medical. And I think the reason for that is even though this did start off as a community by doctors for doctors, it is now spilling into healthcare in general. We've had stories from nurses and physical therapists and hospital administrators, and we've invited others into the community as well. But then also outside of that, everybody has a body and everybody has either been sick or known someone who's become sick or lost someone. Um, unlike, you know, these other popular like podcasts and TV shows like crime dramas and murders, like how many people are actually that close to a murder? Like I hope most aren't. <laughs> hopefully not. Uh, hopefully not. But in medicine, like it's our everyday. Like everybody has gone to the doctor or been in a hospital or taken care of someone or, or whatever. So it's there's a there's a universal element to health and medicine. I think um, that makes it really appealing to the masses. Is there an element to the retreat that you're facilitating now, where you are helping um, the physicians tell their story? So the theme for this year's retreat is storytelling. And I've been working with this amazing um, storyteller and dance and performance artist named Nina Wise. Nina is not a physician, but she has done a lot of uh work in this realm of movement, storytelling. She does a lot of work actually that is less, um, writing and more like th through the body, which I think is phenomenal. Um, and I'm coming at this with more of the hybrid, like medical storytelling background, probably more heavy on the medical than the storytelling. And so I think we're complementing each other really nicely during this week. And I think what we're trying to do is, um, talk to the group about storytelling. Why do human beings tell stories? What is the point? Really, why are stories so powerful and why we should treat them with care and, you know, be careful about how we use them and how we deploy them. You know, what is a story? How do you, how do you communicate effectively? How do you create a story that is, um, likely to connect with other people? Um, and then giving people the opportunity to do some free writing and do some, um, exercises with prompts that get their creative juices flowing. And then also I think really explicitly drawing attention to the barriers to self-expression, like what is it that holds you back? And what is it that holds you back as a person? What is it that holds you back at a doctor as a doctor? What is it that holds you back as a woman? Like what are the narratives that are preventing you from, um, using storytelling, uh, in your own life. And that's been a really fruitful discussion, I think. And I hope that the participants, um, come away from this feeling more comfortable, not just with like the mechanics of how to tell a story, but also just giving themselves permission, like emotional permission to tap into their own stories. I mean, without getting too much into the specifics, I'm kind of curious about what narratives might've emerged seen from the lens of being a, being a woman in particular, in terms of, uh, making it more difficult for them to tell their stories. Great question. And this is something I've been reading and thinking a lot about. I'm in the middle of a novel right now called Fleischman is in Trouble by uh, Taffy Agner Brosner. I hope I didn't butcher her name too much, but great novel. Haven't finished it yet, but it, it touches on a lot of these issues, which is like, how does the world respond to a highly like 
ambitious man who wants to like go all the way to the top and like make it? And how does the, res- how does the world respond to a woman doing the same thing? And I think that's a really interesting question to examine and to look like, to look at. And I think often men, it's like, Oh, of course, like he wants to be the best and achieve and like get this award and be the best writer and write this novel and like climb all the way up. And like, that's okay. But then if a woman does that somehow, I think as a society, we've decided that that's not okay because really a woman should be, um, it kind of taps again into this theory of like sacrifice of the self for the other. And that has all sorts of tie-ins with like pregnancy and motherhood, which is, you know, can be sometimes unique, especially pregnancy to the female body. Back to your question. I think that perspective doesn't just apply to ambition and career ambition, but also applies to telling our stories. I had a woman recently at a conference, I gave a talk and she came up to me and she said, I have this story that I've been thinking about for months and I've just been turning it over in my mind. And I, I was thinking like, maybe I would submit it to your show, to the Nocturnist to try to like tell it on stage or come on the podcast. But, but, but I never would like, I, it's just not something I would ever do. And I said, well, why not? Why, why not? And she said, well, I just feel like it's really narcissistic. Like so immediately, you know, that's the best story. You need that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it sounded like she had something to say, but she was holding herself back because she said, well, it feels like I would be a narcissist. Like how arrogant is it that I would think my story is worth anything or that anybody would want to hear anything I have to say. I think that that feeling of like, oh, I'm not, my life isn't worthy of inquiry or it's not okay for me to want to examine my own life and then tease out images and senses and sounds and then put them on display for other people to connect with, that that, that that's not okay, I think um, sometimes can be gendered. And I think sometimes women especially feel like if they want to do that, that there's something wrong with them, that it's like a snobby, narcissistic thing to do, when in reality, it's like one of the most kind and empathetic things you can do. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah. I think you hit on it. You're really, you're doing God's work here. Uh. I also, um, growing up went to the pediatrician as many do. And my pediatrician was a woman. And I don't know, there was something about that. I think that was really important modeling for me. And I just, I worshiped her, um, probably because I was unconsciously adopting this idea of the doctor as God or the doctor as like perfect or the doctor as all knowing, which now I know is not true. But in that moment as a little girl, I saw my doctor and I just, I knew I wanted to be like that. Um, hi, Dr. Keller, if you're listening. Um, then as I started to go through school, I started to become afraid that I would be losing my artistic and creative side if I pursued medicine. And I decided that I would major in history of art and architecture. I took a summer internship at an art gallery in New York, thinking maybe I would actually abandon medicine altogether and pursue a career in the arts and had a little bit of a crisis in college. But ultimately I decided that I wanted to move forward with medicine. Um, And at the time I thought, well, art is important to me, but I want to keep that on the side as more of a hobby. Um, I didn't want art to be my career, like fine art, like art gallery, New York city, fine art world. I decided I didn't want to be my career just because you're interacting with such a small, like 0.01% of like the wealthiest population. And I just, I don't know. I didn't, there was something about that that didn't taste good to me. So, um, I decided I would do medicine and have art be like more of my hobby or try to find ways to weave it into the medicine. Um, 
and then went to medical school at Johns Hopkins and then came out here to San Francisco for my residency at UCSF. And this is kind of what happened is I, I ended up creating this thing, which in my mind is a really nice hybrid of science and art, I hope. And, um, I hope to continue writing that and, um, find ways to, to blend science and art because I do think that they're connected. A lot of people would say, well, okay, well, I'm a, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my art. And then they go into a 40, 50, 60, I don't know how many hours a week do you do as a hospitalist? As a resident, it used to be 80. That was the limit. Um, these days I'm actually working, uh, part-time now I work 80% time, which amounts to around 12 shifts a month. And each shift ranges from like nine hours to sometimes pushing it to like 12 hours, depending on how sick the patients are. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but the days are really intense and really long and very packed. And it can take me sometimes like days to recover from a stretch of work shifts. So yes, it does feel like it takes up a lot of space. So has the Nocturnus been its own sort of therapy for you being involved in this kind of expository work? Has it fulfilled some desire that you've, that you needed in your life? And, and will you be a doctor for the rest of your life? So to answer your first question, I'd say absolutely. I founded the Nocturnist when I was in residency, which is the busiest, hardest time, or it was for me anyway. And people will often say to me, like, how did you have time to start up this organization while you were a resident? And I always say to them, like, it was a survival mechanism. Like I had this feeling that if I didn't do it, I wasn't going to make it and I wasn't going to survive. And it really started off as a life raft. So you're asking, like, has this been a form of therapy for me? I would say absolutely. The process of building this community, having others entrust um, their stories with me and, you know, helping um, give them a platform to share their stories has been hugely therapeutic for me and has brought immense meaning and, um, uh, a sense of like purpose, um, to my life and to my career. So yes. And I hope it will continue to do so. Will I be a doctor forever? I'd like to think so. Um, medicine is really hard. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Paperwork and a lot of social work that the doctors end up doing that they shouldn't be doing. There's a lot of sitting in front of computers, um, checking boxes instead of taking care of the patient in front of you. And I think it's a daily struggle every, you know, like this is not what I thought it would be. This is not what I want it to be. And even just talking to some of the women at this retreat, these are common themes that are coming up that medicine is like being hijacked by, something. I don't know if it's tech or capitalism or whatever profit, like it's something that is wrong. And doctors are, are really in an epidemic of despair. And I am definitely included in that. But I think on the bright side, um, it is for all the reasons we've talked about, like a, a really just special, and I, I might even venture to say like sacred, profession and something that I draw a lot of strength from despite all of the challenges. And also a lot of like stories live in my work with patients and in my work with medicine. If I quit medicine, I honestly just don't even know what I would write about. (laughs) So, um, I think right now the creative and the, and the medicine feed off of each other in a way that feels really symbiotic and really nice. But for now I'm, I'm still in the white coat. And if people want to see a live show of the Nocturnist or tune into the podcast, how, how would they do that? So you can go to our website. It's the So that's the Nocturnist's 
with an S.com. And then um, wherever you get your podcast, if you just type in The Nocturnist, will pop up. And we have two seasons. And um, actually, over the summer, released a few special episodes, so some bonus content. And then our formal season three should be launching in 2020. So please check it out have a listen, whether you work in healthcare or whether you're not working in healthcare, I um, hope that you'll connect with the stories and and spread the word because we really want to get these stories out there. Well, before we close, I just wanted to share, it's a bit of a coincidence, but my wife was actually treated at UCSF this summer Um, to make a very long story short. She developed a pulmonary embolism um, in the eighth month of her pregnancy and it was very nearly fatal, but some really amazing doctors and, um, uh, healthcare professionals at UCSF saved her life and her baby daughter's life. I had previously been a bit of a hippie in approach in my approach to medicine, but now I'm like Western medicine doctors. <laughs> we would donate a wing to UCSF if we could. And the quality of human interaction during that time with the, the nurses as well as the doctors and even the administrators there was, was otherworldly. So someone's doing something right and so we wanted to thank you. We, we like doctors. That's my message. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that story. And I'm so happy to hear that your wife is doing okay and that your daughter is doing okay and that it was a positive experience. I did my training at UCSF and I still have an appointment at UCSF and I know the people at UCSF and the doctors and the nurses at UCSF and they really are an incredible group of doctors, but also of people. And, um, I'm just so delighted to hear that, that everything is okay and that they took good care of you and, and that, um, that was a good experience and, um, you should reach out to UCSF and they can use that story to, to spread their message because it is a really great institution. Dr. Emily Silverman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Cheryl Franzel. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pandora, and more. It's easy to stay up to date with the latest releases. Just hit subscribe. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. <laughs>